Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm happy to have with me a writer whose work I've always enjoyed, Clover Hope. She is a contributing editor at Pitchfork, and she wrote a great new book called The Motherload, 100 Plus Women Who Made Hip Hop. Was it originally going to be 100 and they just couldn't keep it to 100? Actually, it was going to be about half. Like, I started out with probably around 60 and then the more I sort of like kept researching, I was like, what if I did 100? <laughs> <laughs> what if I went past 100? Yeah. And then the plus was like, yeah, let's do plus because then let's make the plus like symbolic, you know, like it's, it goes beyond even 100, you know? Well, it's largely divided artist by artist, as the title suggests. But what it ends up doing is telling a very necessary story, which is just obviously the story of women in hip hop, which is such a rich tapestry and such a great way to look at the history of rap overall. There's so much life and music in this book. There's so many chapters that could and should be turned into books of their own. One of the things I took away from it was the number of stories of sort of frustrated potential. Lady of Rage and other artists who never released their debut albums. They never got to where they should have been because of, of sexism and other structural factors. And that's, for all the success stories, that story is told again and again. How much of a, of a takeaway w- was that from the whole thing for you? Right. And, you know, the thing is that so many artists end up kind of sitting on shelves. It's not that it's a thing that's unique to women, but what makes it like more of an issue is that you just have so few to begin with. So it's kind of like if you have one female rapper who's like just sitting on a shelf at a label then that just kind of like reduces the numbers so much or that's at least what happened in the what 2000s when it started becoming an issue and there was that whole infamous drought before Nicki Minaj when you know there were only there were very few women signed to major labels and they weren't kind of making the charts Um, budgets were sort of like not really existent or less existent for women on major labels. So that was definitely one thing, like the frustration. And, you know, with Lady of Rage and Lady Luck and, you know, Charlie Baltimore's, you know, like all these albums are just kind of um, all this, yes, like potential that sort of basically like changes the timeline for, you know, it just kind of like alters the timeline a little bit because maybe two women instead of like uh, six, <laughs> you know, and that's such a difference compared to with men. It's like maybe the people who are sitting on the shelves, it's like, okay, well, 40, you know, rap albums this year instead of like 60, <laughs> you know, so it's just such a drastic difference. And then as far as like what what I learned, um, well, one was just, you know, just how many women were part of creating hip hop, co-creating, however you kind of want to say it. It wasn't just contributing. It was basically, you know, we have to think about like MC Sharrock and Debbie D and Pebbly Poo and those people. They made hip hop also. And that was, you know, also part of the subtitle. Everything that was happening in the 70s that led to hip hop becoming a title, you know, before it even was given a name, the graffiti, breakdancing, um, the DJing and MCing, all these girls were doing that. MC Sharrock talked about breakdancing and Pebbly Poo was like breakdancing. Like some of them were DJing, like they all were doing that. Um, so they were making hip hop. And that was something I didn't kind of like know some of these women. So Absolutely. And I, I want to pretty soon segue into a little bit of the chronological story because 
one thing I took away as well is this reminder that this sort of natural state of hip-hop, if you will, is to have women deeply involved. Because if you look at the beginning, as you said, they were woven into the fabric. I think there were some woven in from the beginning, but some of them did have stories like Mercedes ladies of feeling like they weren't given the same kind of like presence on stage. And Mercedes ladies was one of the earliest um, uh, considered you know, essentially like the first kind of like female rap group consisting of like DJs and MCs. And so I think gradually the pool, I guess, sort of like peters peters out, uh, if that makes sense. And you just kind of get this story of it being a male sport versus sort of like just something for everyone. And, you know, there are many reasons for that. I liked what you said at the top about just how you can tell the story of hip hop like through women like if you choose to which I chose to you know like it's just we choose to tell it through men and through like DJ Cool Herc being the first person but it's sort of like I wanted to just make people think about like what if the first DJ was like the young girl who was like trying out DJing (laughs) you know like it's and not to take anything away from him but you know every like we are deciding like who created like that party that Herc did which I mentioned is you know would that like spiraled into hip-hop like his sister through the party so it's sort of like can we then say she was the creator you know like of hip-hop but we're not saying that so or not you know or hip-hop is has not like said that she's like the creator of hip-hop you know like so I just kind of want people wanted people to think about that and like what have you kind of had this you know just see like these kind of timelines where you know girls were doing it and, you know, they're as much woven in as the guys. It's just fewer for a reason. So Absolutely. And another thing I took away, and, and again, just as it's not only women artists who had their albums shelved forever, it's far from only women rappers who over the years who have had short careers. It's striking, especially the earlier you go, how many times you see, oh, but, you know, then I want to get got my education or then I... Then I became a mother, and and that we're a long way from like Cardi B, where it's like, so what if you're a mother? Like, like it's like I'm I'm rapping, holding my kid. But there's a lot of these like sort of life changes, or or even like Queen Latifah, like you become a a, a famous actress and, and and showbiz personality. It's just we don't have so far like even Jay Z type uh, women rappers who you know have those decades careers. Of course, there aren't many Jay-Z's, period. But what? how much of that did you, you give thought to? Right, exactly. And Queen Latifah is a good example. We're sort of like, you know, the same, you know, people like to use glass ceiling that kind of um, exists in different in- industries for women. You know, that's also in hip hop where there is a certain point and it's like one, yeah, like they, you know, the whole Lauren Hill went through this whole pregnancy thing where she rapped about it on record how people told her no no don't do this like you'll hurt your career and you know that was like just kind of a radical statement in itself for her to kind of try to just be like it's I'm just I'm having a baby I can also like do this thing and at that time uh, MC Shawrock also had mentioned that as an issue with her group members Funky 4 Plus 1 and so you know that's the thing that uh there are so many kind of like things that they have to women, you know, in the business have to think about that doesn't have to even cross the line of like, you know, like the male artists, um, whether that's like, you know, having baby or or like image, having to present a certain image or 
sound a certain way. And, you know, that comes through in their stories. Another thing was like, yeah, like the contract issues. Obviously, that's just a music thing in general. But, um, you know, the sequence um, has talked about, you know, like their issues there. And, um, you know, there are those kind of just recurring uh, threads. Yeah. What was perhaps the the biggest surprise that to you in your research? Um, the biggest surprise, well, I mean, it definitely was the debate amongst the kind of like founding women. Yes. <laughs> in, in fact, let's jump to that because that's a great place to let's use that as our segue. That awesomely, as with many innovations, uh, there is yeah more than I realized too a real fiery debate over who was the first woman rapper. So yeah, please, please go on. Right. And like Sharrock, her book title is like trying to kind of insert that legacy basically. And it's the beginning and an end of the first female MC, <laughs> you know, she wanted to kind of make that known. She talks about it in the book, like how her tried to give the title to someone else. And she's like, you know, it's mine. And she makes a case for it. So I spoke to her, and then there was kind of like a whole separate thing between Debbie D and um, Pebbly, who both of whom I spoke to, and you know they wanted to, you know, they want to be recognized as the first female rap soloist, like the first solo MC, like you know, going out on stages alone, and they have their cases for themselves also with like you know flyers and things like that, and you know it can seem like, um, you know, maybe it's easy to seem like why does it matter, but. You know, they felt like they didn't have recognition. And so it's kind of like, how do I just get, insert myself into this story in a meaningful way? And like being first is a way that you can't kind of, can't, you can't like, uh, people have to remember that. Like people remember first. It's like, okay, that person was the first to do this thing. So I definitely get it as, um, you know, just fighting to be remembered basically. And so that was like, like I hadn't, you know, it just has been quietly kind of going on <laughs> and they've amongst themselves. And then even, the, the, you know, it, there was a thing with the sequence where they were the first rap group because they were the first group that released the physical record. But then Mercedes Ladies came before them. So it's this whole kind of thing. And I'm sure um, this has happened between the like men, you know, in terms of like who gets credit versus who doesn't. But yeah, I think because in the first place, women don't get as much of the credit in like creating hip hop. I think that is a really interesting story. Just like they should be known as creators also, where I don't know if people kind of see them as, I think people see like her Grandmaster Flash, like Africa Bombada and like all those names, like in, when they think of like, they think of like the forefathers of hip hop, the founding fathers, and like forefathers. And like people kind of very rarely talk about the women in that story. So that was definitely like a surprising and really, you know, important kind of like narrative I felt like I had to tell. Absolutely. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind the scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. And, you know, MC Sharrock is such an important figure. And I was actually moved when she said, I think, to you 
that people want to say one of the first. And she's like, like, no, like, no, like that is not good enough. Like I am the first. And it, it, it's just, and it seemed like you were kind of leaning towards let's give her that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like the people who were there um, steer in that direction to saying that, yes, like, like she was like the first prominent, like if the people who are there are saying it, I think it's sort of like if they can, if they keep saying it, then it becomes record because that's oral history that then gets stamped as something. And I think that's what she's trying to kind of like basically prove is that, you know, it's not just me saying it. It's also my peers have said, have kind of like, you know, corroborated this. Um, And I, you know, I didn't like find anyone who like disputed her being sort of like the, you know, or her giving her that title. But yeah, that moved me also, like when she kind of broke it down. And I really just like, I wanted to keep it exactly how she said it. Um, Like just, you know, you guys want to kind of like be safe and say, oh, one of or like considered. And I still do that in the book. Um, Just because I mean, there's like fact checking. So but like, she's making a case that like, hip hop does love to be definitive about everything. It's like, you know, yes, the best, like, Nas, Illmatic is a classic album. Like, there's no disputing that. Like, whoever tries to dispute that is, like, crazy. So <laughs> certain things are definitive in hip-hop. So I think she's just sort of being like, why can't this be, like, definitive, you know? Well, let's talk a little bit more about her. Maybe just tell her whole story, where she came from and the group she was part of. And, you know, when we're talking about how deeply women were interwoven into the beginning. I mean, look, look at the song she's on, you know, that's the joint and things that are, you know, some of the most famous, most sampled, most referenced songs of all time. There she is. But yeah, maybe tell that story a little bit. Right. And one of the longest songs, like hip hop <laughs> yeah, songs ever made. That's yeah, so um, MC Shawrock, she's a founding member, helped form, uh, was, you know, formed the group Funky Four Plus One, which had different names. Like it was Funky Four, Funky Four, Funky Four Plus One, Funky Four Plus One More. <laughs> and they kind of like, it was like a bunch of different permutations. But she basically like, you know, she started off break dancing. She transitioned into MCing. She learned how to, uh, she learned how to break dance when it was, a, you know, just being created she learned how to MC when you know it was just like people were just starting to MC. it wasn't even really called rapping yet like people weren't called rappers yet and in, in this like early uh mid 70s and so um you know she basically like went around she was in the group um they were one of the first like nationally televised um rap performances on saturday night live which That's is huge. huge deal yeah yeah and so she's a huge part of like why hip-hop is pop and to see it that way and to hear that framing i think is you know a way that we can kind of like at least retell or kind of like re-see hip-hop history because it's sort of like it's easy to just look at it as the group yes so funky four as a group is like you know iconic and they brought you know they brought hip-hop on a bigger stage um, but even like if you get even more granular, like this young black girl helped turn hip hop into popular music. It's just kind of looking at those the elements of this of it in that way. Like you have to like give the credit and you have to kind of like, you know, see her. And I don't but I don't think people sort of like 
uh, you know, many hip hop fans probably don't know that story. Like I certainly hadn't known like the like breadth of her story. So those are the things I'm kind of just trying to get across like in the book. And I'm trying to kind of like just get people to shift a little bit because even when people think about like how hip hop was made or when we make sort of like these top 10 lists or like your top five MCs or things like that, it's because of how dominant men have been, those lists are just always going to be like male dominant. Like it's always going to be like until we kind of start trying to see like the story in a different way. Like what if you just um, just kind of like shift the lens a little bit? It's just it's not even like a an untrue story of yeah. hip hop. It's just like this is another lane that was happening at the same time. In some cases it's it's literally you're just not literally, but you're just panning the camera over to the left and be like, Oh, look who's over there. What about Right, exactly. Um, and it's important to note that I mean, you know, Jay Z cited and I'm sure for a million other people his age, what a huge moment it was to see that performance on Saturday Night Live, which was introduced by Debbie Harry, kind of brought them on. And it was five years before another rap performance on, on Saturday Night Live. Five years. I mean, that's a whole other. I mean, there's a lot of like injustices and sort of little horrors that are sort of thrown out in, in the book. And that's a great reminder. But that moment was so huge. And there was Shah Rock. So let's talk a little bit about Mercedes ladies. Maybe we can tell their story a bit. Yeah, they were f- the first interviews that I did for the book, um, wow. like among the first interviews. And um, so it was great to kind of like start out with their story because that was a discovery process for me, having not grown up on them or like known that they were basically formed sort of like uh, mid late 70s. And they were basically started off as party promoters. And they were just young girls trying to kind of market themselves, just kind of like they wanted to be like a like a fun girl group. And they taught themselves to DJ and MC and um they would kind of like apprentice a little bit with the guys who were DJing and they were kind of crucial to building hip hop in the early days. You know, I tried to center each story around like a larger idea about hip hop. You know, like you said in the beginning, you can see these trends through women also. Like so when I talk about Mercedes ladies, it's like, well, why aren't there more female rap groups? And then that's like a whole Thing when it's like, oh, yeah, there have been very few, like, groups of women, <laughs> even from, like, three, whereas you've had the Outcasts and you've had Wu-Tang and, like, G-Unit and all these crews that are, like, all guys. And, you know, you just, that's also part of the, um, I guess, you know, that's also, like, a recurring trend where because there are so few women, there are also so few, like, female rap groups in general. And um, so they were just a way to kind of like, um, you know, that was the way to tell their story and then also highlight that larger sort of like blind spot. Mercedes ladies, imagine like in the summer of 1979, you're a cool enough group of women that you're starting a hip hop group. That's just like. (laughs) Yeah, they created their own like basically merch (laughs) before we called it that with their names on it, like jackets. And they were just kind of like, so, so their names on. And um, so they made their own kind of like outfits that they use as promo and people started noticing them. And it was, became this, um, you know, oh, there's Mercedes ladies. And, you know, there are a couple songs where their names are, you know, shouted out on the record. And yeah, like those early days where it was just parties where hip hop was just like parties and being in the park and like jamming, like it was not on physical record yet, which is so crazy to think about. But they started before hip hop was even, before rap was even like recorded 
onto vinyl. So that is like incredible in itself, just thinking about, um, you know, that's like the, if you think about hip hop, the big bang of hip hop, it's like they were in the early matter of <laughs> the planets forming and like right. creating rap music. Well, it's like Lisa Lee. She's so early that you only hear her rapping in the movie Beat Street. She never got to release a record, period. I wanted to talk briefly about the sequence because they're the little, it's that link between sort of like cheerleading chants, like sort of a musicological link there between cheerleading chants and, and, and uh, early rap. Right. And it's so, like, it's just so funny that they kind of saw it that way. And actually, yeah, they talked about it in a Rolling Stone interview where they were cheerleaders at their their high school and they kind of just saw that as a natural transition into like rapping and like emceeing. It's like, okay, you know, it is. It's just like, rah, rah, da, 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 you know. And they, you know, and funk you up with, you know, like their hits. And it is like, you can rap that like as a chant, <laughs> like a cheerleading chant. like, we're gonna funk you right on up. We're gonna funk you right on up. We're gonna funk. And so they kind of really wanted to be known for kind of being one of the groups that really introduced melody and like kind of weaving, you know, singing and rapping. And, you know, I think from the beginning, you know, rap was always like coming out of disco, like that natural kind of soul and melody was in there. But they want to kind of just they've wanted it to be known that, you know, they were part of just you know, in terms of commercial records um, and that being the first female rap group to, like, put out a physical record, that they are the on the early part of a trend, basically, and not, like, they're trendsetters, basically, you know. Absolutely. Where would uh, Gwen Stefani's solo career have been? (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) They walked so (laughs) Gwen Stefani could fly. And, you know, incredibly important Roxanne Chante. And I love what you say about what she did with the song that came to be known as Roxanne's Revenge. Well, my name is Roxanne. I don't say no. I just a cold rock a party and I do this show. I said I'm at these three guys. And you know- so basically, like, UTFO had a song, uh, Roxanne, Roxanne. And uh, sh- what... what- Roxanne Chante did, her name was actually Lolita Gooden, that's her real name. She famously in Roxanne's Revenge rapped from the point of view of the fictional character Roxanne in that song. And you said, I think it's like the subject of the painting leaping out of the frame and coming to life. And that's such, I think, an important moment in this sort of lyrics of rap because it's like you know women not allowing themselves to just be the subject rapped about there's something really profound about what happened in that moment when she sees the sort of like authorship in there so maybe you can talk a little bit about her and that yeah authorship like ownership and kind of like it's a really sort of reclamation that happened really early on yeah yeah it's like you know there was this era of like people kind of like uh taking and women did this a lot taking songs and, um, you know, taking songs by male artists and, like, flipping them. And that was another thing I noticed. Like, Saw and Peppa obviously, like, took, um, when they were Supernature, like, their first record was a response record. And there's, like, like, I would find records, like, Boom, I Got Your Girlfriend, and then the group would do Boom, I Got Your Boyfriend. And, like, this was their way of kind of, like, taking something that was, like, you know, popular and, like, putting the female stamp on it and, 
reclaiming in a way that um, is really just, you know, forcing people to notice them. And that's what Roxanne did. And then it was just really like the fact that it became like such a thing on the radio and then in the streets and um, artists, you know, wanting to like be a part of that. That is a very unique phenomenon in hip hop uh, that is very specific to only that record. And, you know, there were like just, hun- uh, you know, it's, it's, we don't even have a Right. solid record. It famously created a, a rocks and wars kind of right, thing. Yeah. It, just, it just went on forever. <laughs> right. And like there are some records that probably happened that no one actually recorded on. Like it's not, you know, people can't find it or something. You know, like there's, it's kind of just lore. So, um, you know, that was important to kind of um, just, yeah, set this, uh, set the, you know, foundation of hip hop as something which is battling, as something that women were also like part of and actually like leading because you know she was a leader in that space in terms of battling so um you know but may not sort of get that recognition and she herself wanted to have that said when she put out her biopic on netflix um that she executive produced uh roxanne roxanne and you know that was a way another way for her to sort of like like claim a space and tell a story in her way and, you know, basically, like, just make sure that she kind of, it's all about kind of like, uh, I just think of like the cursor when you're trying to insert, <laughs> this is like mm. nerdy, but like inserting a letter in when you're like editing and it's like, all right, yes. did it add in like, the E or something? And I just think of like women doing that, like, you know, her just sort of inserting herself. Absolutely. That's cool. And then, you know, and then taking on the name, obviously, you know. Right. Yeah. Her name was not Roxanne. To the point where people people looking back could get confused, you know, but and then let's we're sort of leaping into something a little bit more close to the present with, with Salt and Peppa and so much great music. It's interesting to remember this weird thing where there was a dude who was writing a lot of their music, but then when they their, their biggest hit, he did not write. So maybe just t- talk a little bit about them and, and that weird conflict there. Right, and I think we saw a little bit in that biopic from Lifetime that aired, you know, just how they were basically discovered or, you know, like Herbie kind of like helped form, or, you know, turn them into a duo and wrote a lot of their material and um there was this kind of um I guess like just uh you know th- they were not feeling you know empowered as artists um like behind the scenes um you know they, they didn't feel like they were writing enough and but at the same time they were kind of like you know pre- presenting this like really strong image and you know as you get to see through them like how you can how like women sort of like had to exist in the industry where it's like, mm. well, I have to, you know, like they're playing this, um, presenting this role of, you know, like really trying to show how women can be strong and, you know, we can, and like subverting sort of like the expectations, their song Tramp, it's talking about like promiscuous men. Home girls, attention, you must pay. So listen close to what I say. Don't take this as a- Some of that was written by, uh, or a lot of that was written by Herbie and a man, but they did take that and run with it. And like the, the the group did like sell it. Like they took it on, they believed it. So that's not taking anything away from them at all. It's, it's just like that dynamic really says a lot about just how power sort of like plays out where, you know, the vehicle 
for this message is like, you know, the women and then the person with the actual like power and control is like the guy like behind who's, you know, basically steering and managing and saying what can and can't be done or what should making the decisions basically. So, you know, that, you know, I sort of like just wrote a bit about that and just how they're also like just an early, early example of conscious hip hop, uh, which I don't know. I kind of just arrived at that, you know, because they were making like feminist music. Um, They were rap, they were making music that appealed to feminists and however you want to kind of like phrase it, but in a way that can be, if conscious rap is just like rap that speaks to like society and like the black experience, um, what they were doing was, was that (laughs) it was like the black female experience. And so I just was like, you know, let's kind of call it that maybe. I loved, I think you wrote that hearing Shoop and this sort of uh, deliberate sort of objectification of of a dude was kind of thrilling for you because you felt you were, you were little and you, but you felt the power of the reversal even uh, as a kid there. Right. And it's like something that, yeah, like as a, I was probably like, I don't know, 13, 14 when that came out, early teens. And um, I remember just watching that video all the time and just being like, this is really cool. (laughs) I don't know. I was like, oh, they're doing what the guys always do. And that's cool (laughs) because, you know, we're not supposed to be doing that. Like, I, I can remember that those thoughts like going through my head, but not really thinking that deeply about it, but still thinking about it. Like the wheels are turning like, oh, hmm, interesting. Um, and it, you know, it, that didn't form into, I guess, like a philosophy. I, like I would, I wasn't like I'm a feminist <laughs> at like 14 um, at that point. But you know, yeah, they were kind of instilling, like in a way, like those early thoughts basically into young girls who were listening to hip hop. Or, and I think that is a really, you know, like really just powerful act. That's as powerful and political as anything in, in music when you look at that. We're talking a bit about the history of women in hip-hop, but it's a long history and a relatively sh- short show, so I was joking during the break that it's going to be really the early history of women in hip-hop, but I think that's okay. I think that's what we remember a little less. I, I wanted to talk about bitches with problems because it's really interesting to look at them in the current context because they feel like they were really ahead of their time and were penalized for it. So I think that's an interesting story in itself. Yeah, like just having that name, <laughs> um, which which they talked about, uh, both of them talked about in our interview, it was provocative. And I just remember I was just doing research and came across the, the clip of them on the Phil Donahue show. And I was like, oh, <laughs> like I hadn't, I hadn't ever seen it. And it's um, just an episode with them and like MC Light and, but the topic is like women in hip hop and basically how offensive can we uh, can we get as women <laughs> to kind of like prove a point um, and also like show that, you know, like we, you know, that they had something to say, like they wanted to express some sort of like message. And so they talked about basically, you know, I talked pretty candidly about how they used it as marketing, you know, like it was provocative marketing to use that word in their uh, in their name and to basically be, they went out around on the talk show circuit and, you know, they were provocative and then they talked about being provocative and they got promotion for it and all that. But at a certain point, uh, it just kind of, become, you know, they talk about how it became, um, you know, you have to have like a, 
you know, you have to get outside of uh, the shtick. So um, they were really an early example of just kind of um, very brazenly kind of marketing provocation and just, you know, being like uh, really talking about the use of the word bitch and why they embraced it. And, you know, it was just kind of also happening at the same time that there was this, you know, wave of feminism that was broadly talking about, you know, reclaiming the word. And here was this group that was also kind of like doing that. And it was two black women. And, you know, I kind of put into context around when, you know, this is around generally the time bitch media gets started. And the broader conversation is happening as they are putting out rap music. I know you want to come, but baby, not yet. Oh, my pussy's soaking wet. So yeah, like they were, you know, really kind of just crucial to this timeline of women who, you know, like pre-WAP, <laughs> this pre-WAP kind of group that uh, is sort of in the same lineage. Totally. And we, I don't. I think we should talk about MC Light because, uh, you know, she was great. Yeah, yeah. And so I tried to, like, divide the book into, like, um, all right, what is the, the most notable thing about this person or at least what, to me, feels notable? And, like, MC Light's voice was always that. And uh, specifically, like the beginning, not the beginning, but there, a scene in Love and Basketball, like my favorite movie, <laughs> that just starts acapella, like her just like. Do you understand the metaphoric phrase light as a rock? It's explaining how heavy the young lady is. I just like hearing her voice and like just kind of the power of her voice. And I wanted to really break some of these uh, entries down to like just the atom level, like Yes, all these great things about MC Light. And, like, she was also, like, part of that whole movement of, like, rap feminists or women who were kind of, like, sort of, like, weaving into the, you know, the into, like, the feminist movement in some way. Yes, like, all of that big stuff. But, like, her voice, though, <laughs> you know. Like, yeah. Her voice is just incredible. Like, she MCs like, award shows because of her voice. <laughs> and, and it was interesting to, you know, like, a little research and see that she... Like her coaching with one of the, like the father of the members of the production team that produced like UTFO. Like it's just such a, you know, like the, the web of, you know, the six degrees and like how like she actually, this wasn't just something that she, she didn't just kind of like rap. She, she like tr- trained herself to rap in this, in this way that was like, uh, powerful and like coming from the diaphragm, and so I just kind of kind of write about um, how she learned to rap from the diaphragm, like using all of her voice and all of the kind of like muscles, and that's uh, oh. yeah. <laughs> I have to touch briefly on Bahamadia just because she is one of the many things I enjoyed about the book is is I was like oh yeah I have to li-. she's always been one of my favorite rappers but I haven't listened to her in years and I kind of almost forgot about her and I was like because I actually wrote her bio for her her, her, her debut album uh, as a kid as an intern so got drafted into that and I just I, I, I've always I always loved her music so maybe just <laughs> talk, talk briefly about the greatness of Bahamadia if you don't mind landscaping and mentally shaping looking at my Gucci it's about dead time represent my people's on the yeah she was also one of the earlier interviews and she was great um and yeah so she was basically like uh you know in partnership with guru uh the late guru and you know was really intent on 
kind of having this marriage of like similar to him, um, jazz, jazzy, sort of like laid back, bluesy sort of like uh, soundscapes with like hip hop. And so she would rap, you know, she would was kind of part of that movement of, uh, you know, Guru's um, Jazzmatazz and, you know, series and, um, you know, one a, a good example of, of the, I guess, like more quote unquote underground woman MC, like rapper who is like really seen as like just a dope lyricist. Like everyone who kind of like knows her music is like, oh yeah, she's like great. Like she's dope um, lyrically. And it's sort of just like on that like level of just like underground cred and, you know, being kind of like okay in that space, basically. I kind of like maybe like her and then Jean Grey or yeah. like in the same atmosphere, you know. <laughs> Speaking of people in the same atmosphere, uh, before we go, and, and uh, I should emphasize that this book does not stop in the in the 90s. It goes right to the present, but uh, we're, we're not going <laughs> to... But but we should talk about maybe together uh, Lil Kim and, and Foxy Brown. I just love the fact that uh, Lil Kim and Foxy were supposed to do this big album together, and they both apparently got paid for it. And it went to the point where there were Kevin Lyles and all these people were like waiting in the studio for them, and it, it, it never happened. There's something it, it, I think that album is all the more great for having never happened. It can live on in our imagination. That is true. There's legend. Um, just we can just imagine what they would sound like together, and I think that is. You know, just Foxy and Kim never getting to kind of like work together in a really extensive way. Like the uh, total remixes, uh, like just something that I hold dear, um, that they're both on the same record. I think that just kind of drawing the line between that never existing and then now having this plethora of women who are getting on records together is interesting. Um you know, having like Megan and Cardi on WAP and then, you know, Doja and Nikki and then like Nikki and Megan and like all these different, like there's, you know, just working on these records together. It really is at least, you know, definitely for a fan, like a woman who has also, is also a rap fan, just it's like moving, to, <laughs> you know, just to, it's basically dream, uh, not to be cheesy, but like, a dream come true in a way for all the people who wanted to see Kim and Foxy or hear mm. them on a record um, or just see them together like in a video or kind of just working together. I think that's, a, you know, this is the, what's happening now is a way that that's being realized or emerging or, you mm. know, just kind of materializing uh, for this new generation. And uh, maybe they take it for granted because they didn't come from an era where they're, like we were just dying to hear two of the top female rappers on a record together. I think it's, it's probably great that they just see it as a natural thing. I guess it's sort of like, you know, a black president. <laughs> it's like mm. now you like if that's sort of like you're like you don't have to like spend decades like dreaming about it. So I think there's a real I think part of the book is that I want to make that um, draw the line between those two eras you know uh they did of course post together at least for the cover of the source and the the uh, cover line was like sex and hip-hop harlots or heroines yeah and i spoke to the source the um editor-in-chief at the time um selwyn and you know he talked about just how it was a big moment in hip-hop for the to have them on the cover and to even have two women who were like dominant at the same time because um, this was, you know, 96, it was, you know, you would have, like, Queen Latifah, like, though, you know, you had the people, 
prior MC Light, but this was a different type of dominance and like popularity where because they were also like selling the same imagery and like sexy imagery and there was this whole just shift toward that. So it was, you know, his kind of note was that they could tell that this was like a real shift in the Mm -hmm. culture and that they wanted to like document that shift. And that is the only cover that's not like photoshopped (laughs) of them, you know, actually together, like on a magazine cover. And so, yeah, like like, there's so many stories in between like that and WAP, but like they're all related. Like they're all sort of like interconnected into like, you know, a story of hip hop, not to leave a bow, (laughs) bow bow ending, but, yeah, like I hope that Kim and Foxy at some point, get, I still have hope that they'll like just get on a record together. Um, there was also that whole, like they were supposed to reunite at like Summer Jam or, and, you know, uh, and be on stage together. And I think like old heads, like hip hop old heads, just still kind of like harbor that dream that it'll happen. Like people still talk about verses, like them getting on a verses together, which I do not ever see happening. I think the world <laughs> would like crash if that were to happen. So this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. I want to thank Clover Hope for joining me. Definitely check out her new book, The Motherload: A Hundred Plus Women Who Made Hip Hop. Especially because you will get the rest of the story of women in hip hop. But it's an essential book, and we'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's volume. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes if you can. It's always appreciated. But as always, stay safe. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.